In 2017, Pew Research polled Americans about their opinions on China, and the results were more or less an even split. 47% said they had an unfavorable view of China, and 44% had a favorable view. Fast forward to today, to 2020, and that gap has grown massively. In the latest polling, they showed that 73% hold an unfavorable view of China compared with only 22% that hold a favorable view. And public opinion is not the only metric by which you can see opposition to China in the United States. In the 116th Congress, we've seen an explosion of China-related legislation, with hundreds of bills being proposed on everything from human rights in China to supply chain security. And senior figures in the U.S. government have also been specifically naming China as a threat to the United States. FBI Director Christopher Wray gave a speech at the Hudson Institute laying out the FBI's view about the Chinese government. First, we need to be clear-eyed about the scope of the Chinese government's ambition. China, the Chinese Communist Party, believes it's in a generational fight to surpass our country in economic and technological leadership. Now that's sobering enough, but it's waging that fight not through legitimate innovation, not through fair and lawful competition, and not by giving their citizens the freedom of thought and speech and creativity that we treasure here in the United States. Instead, China is engaged in a whole-of-state effort to become the world's only superpower by any means necessary. And at a similar speech at the Nixon Library in California, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo offered similar remarks that clearly laid out China as a central threat. Look, we, we have to admit a hard truth. We must admit a hard truth that should guide us in the years and decades to come. That if we want to have a free 21st century and not the Chinese century of which Xi Jinping dreams, the old paradigm of blind engagement with China simply won't get it done. We must not continue it, and we must not return to it. And these two speeches were part of a series of four given by senior officials in the U.S. government, so it's clear that China is a major target for this administration. And beyond just the realm of policy, China plays a role in U.S. politics as well. As the U.S. presidential race between President Trump and Vice President Biden is heating up, both of the campaigns are releasing attack ads that criticize the other's perceived weakness on China. And fear-mongering. For 40 years, Joe Biden has been wrong about China. I believed in 1979, and I believe now, that a rising China is a positive development. Deadly epidemic. But be clear, we have to know what's going on. But Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. The president tweeted, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. China, I spoke with President Xi, and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February as the coronavirus spread across the world. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing a very good so job. So how did we get here? What role does China play in domestic U.S. politics? First, let's address how we ended up here. The U.S.-China relationship has not always been so adversarial. What happened in the past decade or so that has led to China's role in U.S. politics and U.S. policy? Yeah, so, so I think that's, it's great to start with that kind of how did we get here question because the moment that we're at is one um, that I think is is different from a lot of previous moments in U.S.-China relations. That is Sheena Chestnut-Greitens. She's an associate professor at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I spoke with her just to understand better how we ended up in this moment. 
U.S.-China relationship has always been this mix of competition and cooperation. And I can't remember a time as a China watcher where the balance has been so heavily tilted toward confrontation. When I look at what's going on in the U.S.-China relationship, I see a couple of different strands that are coming together to create the current climate. Um, and I think the first one is a change in Chinese behavior and China's approach to its, its engagement with the world, um, which seems to be a function of Xi Jinping's leadership by and large. Um, and so we, in the, in the last you know, five or so years, we've seen shifts toward uh, you know, more risk-taking and much more pushing to, to change dynamics on the ground in China's favor across a whole set of issues. Um, we see that in the South China Sea. We see that with China's internal policies in Xinjiang, where in the spring of 2017, you had a dramatic uptick in and change in strategy to use mass detention rather than the sort of surveillance and security buildup that we've seen prior to that. Mm -hmm. We've now seen um, China pressing its interests and claims in along the border with India, in Hong Kong, um, in the U.S.-China economic relationship. So we've seen, uh, I think, in the last probably five to eight years, a real change in China's behavior. So that's the first strand. Um, the second that I think you see is something that's cyclical, where it's typical in American elections to see a rise in anti-China or at least tough on China rhetoric in, say, for example, House or Senate races, um, members of the legislature, presidential cycles. And so it's often been that there's been a, an increase in this tough on China rhetoric and then things sort of subside um, and then cycle up again. And for a while, um, my sense from interlocutors in China is that they understood that as a cyclical dynamic in U.S.-China relations and would just kind of wait it out. And I don't think that's necessarily true anymore. Um, and then the third strand that I think is really important that comes together to, to, to help us understand how this question of how we got here is um, a set of officials in the administration um, who were convinced that the, the past approaches to China had not been effective and especially were ineffective in countering the changes that they saw or the developments in the U.S.-China relationship, that the U.S. was losing too much ground on the, the current trajectory and that something very dramatic needed to be done to confront and halt that dynamic. And so I think what you're seeing is this confluence of these three different strands, a more aggressive, assertive China across a whole range of issues, uh, a sort of normal cyclical feature of American electoral politics and rhetoric about being tough on China, and then third, a set of, of officials who have a more fundamental reorientation in mind for the U.S.-China relationship. And while we've had each of these things present at one time or another before, we've rarely, if ever, had all three of them coming together in the way that we're seeing now, mm -hmm. um, which is part of what makes this a potential, I think, watershed moment for U.S.-China relations.
Mm-hmm. Um, to go back to the, uh, the, the first strand there of domestic changes in China, have those, I assume, been almost entirely driven by Chinese domestic forces? Or do you think that actions from the United States or other international actors have shaped the way that, that China is acting? I think there has been some contribution to the international environment, but fundamentally the way that Xi Jinping thinks about and organizes internal security is very different than at least some of his predecessors. A lot of my work focuses on China's internal security policies, policing, Mm -hmm. surveillance, um, things like that. And Xi Jinping has completely remade the, the apparatus um, that sort of tries to protect regime security and party security in, in China. Um, and one of the ways that he's done that is to talk about um, external security and foreign behavior as a threat, not just in the classic way that we would think about national security, which is more external, um, but as but, but external powers being evaluated in terms of how their behavior impacts the stability of party rule. And so, for example, um, Hong Kong is an area where China has always seen the risk of excessive foreign intervention that could be destabilizing. And when protests broke out in, in Hong Kong um, over the extradition provisions, um, you know, you saw a, a China um, and a Chinese leadership that was much more willing to to bear costs um, in order to impose con- its control over Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, but the framing of that was was it wasn't just that it was sort of internal instability. It was connected to this idea that external powers could come in and destabilize China. Um, so I think what you're what you're seeing is that things that behavior by external powers, um, the United States included, that would have been considered maybe routine or um, not as threatening before, um, have also been reframed in China as more threatening because of the way that Xi Jinping thinks about internal security. Um, And that makes it very hard for the CCP to back itself off of um, confrontation if it believes that the stakes are not just sort of an external territorial dispute or a policy debate over international politics, but if all of those issues are somehow fundamentally tied into the survival of the CCP, then it makes it much harder for the CCP to compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that has a real effect on, I think, pushing China toward a more um, Uh, you know, aggressive, assertive stance on a lot of these issues. So that's the history, the the look back at how the most recent trends led us to this moment. But now that we've arrived, what's the current situation look like? What role does China even play in our politics today? So (laughs) the role of China in the current U.S. political landscape is highly charged. Uh, It's a major hot button issue right now. That's Anna Ashton. She's the director of government affairs at the U.S. China Business Council. Um, There are polls out there showing that positive views of China among the American public are at their lowest point in over a decade. And other polls that show a large majority of Americans believe the bilateral relationship is worsening. 
And in past election seasons, China has been, you know, this perennial punching bag for both parties on issues related to trade and jobs. And that's still something that we see reflected in the politics right now. But there's been a big shift in the degree to which China rhetoric seems to be dominating political discourse this year and resonating with the American public. Uh, and that's fundamentally, I think, because of COVID. We are five months into this pandemic. More than 150,000 people have died of the coronavirus in the U.S. Wear masks all the time when you're outside. Social distancing, six feet at least. Avoid crowds. Close bars in areas where there's viral activity. And do hand hygiene. COVID is affecting people's livelihoods and their well-being in a much more comprehensive, tangible, palpable way than the trade issues necessarily did. And polls show that the vast majority of Americans believe COVID originated in China, which is, of course, factually accurate, but also a majority, albeit a, a smaller majority, believe China bears significant responsibility for how the pandemic has played out. And while we're talking U.S. politics, there's an obvious elephant in the room here. It's 2020, and the summer is quickly passing us by. The country is gearing up for a presidential race in the fall. So what kind of role does that play in this mix? I think that that the issue is, you know, is this a referendum on the president's handling of the COVID-19 outbreak and its economic fallout, or is it a referendum on the president's handling of China, in, in which case, you know, China is the source and cause of the outbreak and is at fault for the fallout, including the economic consequences. And we've definitely, for several months now, been seeing a concerted, organized effort by the Republican Party to make this election about China. For the Biden camp and for Democrats more broadly, that's really probably not the narrative they prefer to be primary, but it is a narrative where they too are demonstrating a drive to be tough on China. Democrats uh, have long had concerns over China's human rights issues, environmental issues, labor issues, and Republicans have long had security concerns as well as some human rights concerns and, and other shared concerns with Democrats. Both parties overlap a lot in, in terms of the concerns that are China related um, across a, a variety of issues. And this isn't, you know, this isn't manufactured angst that we're seeing in this election season, but it is, it is very much politicized angst. Both candidates have been accusing each other of being too soft on China. Uh, Trump is saying that Biden has been too soft over the course of a long career in Congress and as vice president. And Biden, of course, is pointing to Trump's trade deal as having won too little at too great an expense for Americans. So sure, we could spend all day sifting through campaign rhetoric and campaign ads, but where the rubber inevitably is going to meet the road is in policy. And while it might not be clear or linear, there's definitely a relationship between politics and policy when it comes to China. So what might the realm of China policy look like in the future, be that executive or legislative action? Uh, for the past several years now, we've been seeing this stepped up attention to China in, in policy, uh, both you know, proposed and passed into law legislation, uh, as well as policy coming out of the White House and the executive agencies. And that is only intensifying during this election year. On the Hill, you have increased attention to China over the past couple of years. And we've seen a growing number of proposals that are China related. At this point, we have well over 380 uh, bills and resolutions that have been proposed in, in the 116th Congress that have some sort of China angle to them. Of course, the vast, vast majority of those are not going to become law. So far, I think we've seen 
three pieces of legislation in the last eight or nine months that are explicitly China-related that have become law. Um, so, you know, we don't really have to worry about all 380 of these things, but the very fact that there's that much that's been proposed really speaks to the fact that this isn't just empty rhetoric, this isn't just convenient uh, talking points during an election season. This is, you know, a, a real shift, a fundamental shift in the way that the majority of U.S. policymakers are viewing the bilateral relationship. There is a, a broad bipartisan sense that the relationship needs to be managed differently, that the factors defining the relationship, the power dynamics in the relationship, the ideologies underpinning uh, both governments of, of each country um, really require that policy be different than it has been over the last 20 or, or 30 years. Um, and on the Hill, the, the buckets of policy proposals, there are more of them than we've seen in, in previous years. You know, uh, more committees that, are, that have a stake in how the U.S.-China relationship ought to be governed. Uh, and instead of just seeing, you know, strict traditional trade policy proposals and uh, what you would think of as traditional national security policy proposals, we're seeing this mixture of trade and national security and economic security and human rights and democracy issues all jumbled up together in different policies coming out of, of a variety of committees. Um, there are proposals to do with supply chain security and not being overly reliant on China for things like personal protective equipment, pharmaceuticals, uh, technologies, um, and any number of other things. It's really, um, to borrow a phrase from the, the head of the FBI, it's being treated as a, a whole of society threat, as Christopher Ray has said, with a whole of government response. And so uh, the amount of policy that actually has to be tracked in order to keep up with the way that, that the dynamics of the relationship are shifting and, and the commercial implications of that shift um, is pretty significant. They will use an all tools and all sectors approach and that demands our own all tools and all sectors approach in response. We can't do it on our own. We need a whole of society response. At the moment, the possible trajectories for the U.S. government hang in a balance of a kind. The outcome in November offers different possibilities. We could either see a Biden administration or a second Trump term. So what do those two possibilities entail and how might they be different? You know, I think what has really stuck out during the Trump administration uh, and, and th this White House's approach to China is, uh, well, there are a few things. One, there's been a, a turning away from a real focus on multilateral engagement in order to address common challenges with China and more of a, a go-it-alone approach. And the Trump administration's reasoning for that go-it-alone approach has often been, hey, you know, we've done a lot of multilateral engagement to try to address these problems, but it's too hard to get things done that way. We end up negotiating ourselves down to the lowest common denominator, and then the 
policies that we're able to get on the same page to enact are not effective policies. They're not tough enough policies to, uh, to provoke a change of behavior from China. And so we're going to go with our, our old-fashioned trade toolbox, the stuff that we haven't, hadn't really used since um, joining the WTO and since China became a member of the WTO. And we're going to go with this much more sort of direct bilateral engagement and see if we can't move the ball forward some. Uh, I think that the uh, Biden administration would reverse course on that and would, would go back to a much more concerted effort to engage um, our allies and our partners, our, our other trading partners. Um, and I think that it's no surprise that a Biden administration would reverse course on that, both because that has been uh, Oh, the Biden Biden legacy, right? That's how the Obama administration approached it, and uh, I think they would still argue today they did so to strong effect, and that if we had been able to move forward with implementing the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that we would have had uh, more leverage to manage and try to change certain behaviors of China's than we have today. Um, but also, I think that that the Trump administration itself has begun to rethink this unilateral approach to a certain extent. We see them cultivating and courting allies on various China-related issues much more aggressively now than they used to with Secretary of State Pompeo in London last week and you know, Director of National Intelligence O'Brien in, in Paris the week before, both of them to talk about how to unite to address China challenges. So we might see more of a multilateral approach from a second Trump turn too, but I think for, for sure we would see a more multilateral approach from a Biden administration. I also think um, that there would be probably a greater focus on behind the scenes diplomacy with China to the extent it's possible. I think that this administration has also stood out for uh, a sort of unwillingness to have a whole lot of behind-the-scenes negotiation on things other than trade and the trade the trade agreement uh, that was reached in January and some of that they've explained as you know all of the talking and talking and talking with China through these various dialogues that we had set up previously um, ended up with pretty pretty lackluster returns with China agreeing to very limited changes and uh, lots of time and effort being poured into something that didn't deliver big results. Um, so they ended the JCCT and the SNED dialogues and went with you know a much more uh, focused discussions on specific things that they wanted to negotiate and then really not uh, engaging at and every agency and its counterpart level on a regular basis. I think that we would see a return of that under the Biden administration. But um, I also think that we would see a Biden administration continue to use coercive economic tools against China. I don't think that, that we ought to expect that if a Biden administration took office, that suddenly all of the tariffs that have been imposed on China would just be lifted and that um, trade barriers that we've 
created and export controls that have been enacted would go away, I don't think that we should at all expect that things would simply go back to the way they were before the Trump administration took office in 2016. The reality is that um, change was afoot in the relationship before the Trump administration took office. And as you'll recall, uh, neither, neither candidate Trump nor candidate Hillary Clinton was supportive of maintaining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for instance. So uh, it, even if Clinton had been president, I think that we would have seen some of these changes um, that we've seen under the Trump administration in terms of the dynamic in the US-China relationship and tougher, tougher approach to trade issues and other issues, uh, just maybe with a little bit different tactics than the Trump administration has used. And I think that we'll continue to see this much tougher line towards China under a Biden administration if that's what we end up with. We've also heard you know, from, from Biden circles this idea that, yes, coercive economic tools um, are useful, an acknowledgement that what uh, USTR Lighthizer has done has value, but that they also have to be accompanied with strong industrial policies to strengthen US competitiveness in key areas here at home. Um, and that this is going to mean some pretty large scale government plans for procurement, for spending on job training and education and infrastructure and R&D. So I think we'll also see, um, we'll see the dawn of a new age of American industrial policy under a Biden administration. And frankly, I think we're honestly headed that direction under a Trump administration too. So I guess the ironic thing here is, do I think that there would be differences between a Trump administration approach and a Biden administration approach? Yes. Those differences in some ways will be nuanced. Um, I don't think that there will be a fundamental difference in the overall orientation towards China and in the view that China is a different animal today vis-a-vis -vis the United States than it was in the 70s when we normalized relations or in 2001 when China became a member of the WTO and that we have to have a, a serious rethink of our policy in order to manage that relationship successfully and to the benefit of Americans. Um, I, I just think that we will see different tools applied and a, a greater emphasis on finessed diplomacy and multilateral coalition building with a Biden administration than with a Trump administration. The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council and is the audio companion to our digital magazine of the same name. You can learn more about USCBC on our website, uschina.org, and you can read articles about the latest trends shaping the U.S.-China economic relationship at ChinaBusinessReview.com. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and review. I know you hear it at the end of every single podcast, but it really does make a difference. Let us know how we're doing. If you want to get in touch, my name is Ian Hutchinson, and you can feel free to send me an email at ihutchinson at uschina.org with any questions or comments. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon.